This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, March 26, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court today heard oral arguments on a legal challenge to California's Prop 8 that prohibited same-sex marriage, including marriages already in progress. Roger Pallon, Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute, says several arguments made in favor of Prop 8, most notably recently by the Wall Street Journal, are deeply confused. Well, we're just about two hours as we tape beyond the oral argument in the first of the same-sex marriage cases. And uh, it appears from all the reports that are coming out of the court that the court is focused on the standing issue much more than on the merits of the Prop 8 California case. Specifically, the people who have brought the defense of Prop 8. That's right. This is a case that was brought by people who promoted Prop 8, which defined marriage in California as between a man and a woman only. So what would be their issue with, uh, with not having standing? Well, if this case is decided on the ground that the plaintiffs did not have standing, then it's an open question as to what the result will be. It could be that the Ninth Circuit opinion is left standing, which was a little narrower than the district court opinion. Uh, It could be the district court opinion is left standing, or the uh, justices could actually go to the merits sufficiently to throw both cases out. This is very much an open question at this point. All right. So, but on to the larger issue uh, of, of, of this, you make note of the Wall Street Journal having gotten their uh, perhaps situational constitutionalism uh, getting in the way of uh, what otherwise might be a, a strong idea. Yes. I took exception yesterday to the uh, Wall Street Journal's long editorial, which uh, urged the court to not to preempt the uh, states in working out the uh, cultural uh, disputes that are going on right now over same-sex marriage. And you could understand they're taking that position. It's the cautious position, and it is essentially a plea for judicial restraint. But, of course, the problem is that, and we at Cato have long argued, that the court should be actively engaged in enforcing the Constitution. The journal likened this case that was heard today to Roe v. Wade, where, of course, we've had 40 years of unending battle over this case, and for good reason. But those reasons distinguish Roe from the Perry case that was heard today on very clear grounds. Um, the, uh, the more likely analogy to Perry, the course today, the the case today, is Loving v. Virginia back in 1967, in which the court found that Virginia's anti-miscegenation statute was unconstitutional because of violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, the very provision that is at issue in today's case. And The reason that that's more uh, analogous is uh, not only because of the equal protection angle, but because of the substance of the matter. In a case like Loving, which found that uh, the uh, prohibition of interracial marriage was a violation of the equal protection clause, you've got the same kind of issue you had, for example, in Griswold v. Connecticut, where uh, the court uh, 
found a statute that criminalized the sale and use of contraceptives uh, to be unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Amendment. So too the Lawrence decision in 1903, or excuse me, 2003, in which the court found that uh, the Texas statute uh, criminalizing uh, homosexual sodomy was unconstitutional as a violation of equal protection. In each of those cases, Loving, Griswold, and Lawrence, you had a statute that was enacted under the state police power, which is designed primarily to protect the rights of citizens, a statute that was not designed to protect anybody's rights. Indeed, it was simply a reflection of the morals of the community. And the court said in each of those cases, in effect, that's not good good enough. You've got to have a better reason than that. And so Roe is very different because it is a case that involves a live question whether there are rights to be protected. Namely, it's a case that involves the court or someone in drawing a line between where uh, one rights and one person's rights end and the other person's rights begin, or more precisely, the question to put it in police power terms: When does abortion amount to murder? Now, I think we'd all agree that uh, if you uh, kill a baby a day after birth. It's infanticide. Well, what about a day before birth? Well, there's hardly any difference there. But as you work your way down, you're going to get more and more disagreement. You can find a principled uh, place right at conception, but most people, at least today at this point in time, would not subscribe to that view. So what you've got here is a case where you can have reasonable differences among reasonable people. And so this is a kind of case, a line-drawing case, that is properly left to the states and to the state legislatures to draw as they think best. In all likelihood, if it had been left to the states, that line would have been drawn differently in different states. And so unlike these other cases, that is a very different case. And so Roe is not a good analogy to the case before the court today, which involves a straight up or down case of either you do have the rights or you don't have the rights. It seems that their argument here is appealing to controversy. That is, they're saying, well, because this is going to, you're going to be setting off an angry debate that's going to continue for a long time. Don't do that. Well, the, there's the other disanalogy, too, because in all these other cases, we don't have the controversy today. Nobody really is against interracial marriage today. Who's against the sale and use of contraceptives and even uh, homosexual sodomy in the privacy of your own home? I mean, who's, who's really bothered by that today? Roe v. Wade, of course, is a different case. There's a real live debate about when to draw that, where to draw that line uh, between legitimate abortion and murder. And so that's why that is still with us. And that's why, it, again, it should have been left to the states. Let's talk about the, the equal protections uh, argument here that uh, has been laid out several times here at the Cato Institute. And uh... Well, that was another aspect of the journal's uh, editorial uh, that it seemed to me to be quite mistaken. They have bought into the Supreme Court's uh, seriously mistaken jurisprudence uh, with respect to the Equal Protection Clause, whereby you distinguish different uh, levels of judicial scrutiny and different classes of people that are to be protected under the Equal Protection Clause. Thus, for example, uh, if a law implicates race, then the court applies strict scrutiny and it will likely be found unconstitutional. If it uh, implicates gender discrimination, then 
then you uh, exercise mid-level scrutiny. If it's, uh, for example, uh, homosexual uh, discrimination, then that hasn't been recognized yet by the court as a protected or a suspect class, and there the so-called rational basis test is applied. And so what you've got here is uh, a case whereby the court is urging that the rational basis test be applied. The problem with that test is that it's no test at all. And so what you've got is is an editorial that says that um, the court ought to conclude on the merits that marriage is historically understood does have a rational basis. Well, that's not the question, whether marriage has a rational basis. The question is whether the discrimination against those who want to get married uh, under a same-sex arrangement uh, it has a rational basis. And that kind of discrimination, it seems to me, falls on the government to justify. In other words, the journal article, as the court itself, gets it exactly backwards. The, the Equal Protection Clause isn't uh, written so that government has a presumption to act, and if anybody is arguing discrimination, the burden is upon them to show it. It's just the other way around, namely that the presumption is on the side of liberty, and in particular uh, against governments discriminating. And if government does discriminate, then the burden is upon government to show that it has a compelling reason to discriminate. If it can't do so, then it can't discriminate. So in other words, the presumption in our Constitution is very simple. It is one for liberty. And the burden is upon government to show, if it's going to restrict that liberty, why it must do so. If it's necessary to do so, it may have a good reason. But it is up to the government to show that reason, not up to the individual to show that he belongs to some protected class of some sort that therefore gets a level of scrutiny that may be strict, intermediate, or rational basis. And the irony here is that the journal has for some time rightly criticized this kind of equal protection jurisprudence, especially in the area of economic liberty. We at Cato have long argued that economic liberty is every bit as important as personal liberty, and therefore the court should scrutinize restrictions on economic liberty just as much as any other form of liberty. The journal has long held that position too, but in this case involving same-sex marriage, it seems to have been led astray. Roger Pallon is Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute. You can read his recent op-ed challenging the Wall Street Journal on Prop 8 at our website, cato.org.